0: These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The
1: predictive part of it is just pattern matching. You have to see it and go, what is that going to lead to? right? Let's play this out. Let's say AMD is right. And this thing does come to pass. What will that mean? Right? Let's say cloud computing is going to be the thing. What is that going to mean for the chips? It's got to be optimized power for efficiency. So whoever can do that best is going to be the winner in that game.
0: Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher. And we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we explore the career journey of technologist and technical advisor William A. Adams. We cover everything from why William conducts a career assessment every two years, how he identifies the next career challenge that he wants to take on, what a technical advisor is and how you can build the skills to become one. And we get into the people challenges of the job, how the human work is the secret to unlocking creativity and why building the social fabric of work matters. Let me introduce you to William. William A. Adams was named the first technical advisor to Microsoft CTO Kevin Scott. He's the co-founder of the Leap Apprenticeship Program, launching the training of more than 26 cohorts around the world. William was one of the first black entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, developing mission-critical custom enterprise apps for next computers, and pioneered an instant messaging service purchased by the CIA. Today, in addition to his role as technical advisor at Microsoft, William is the philanthropic founder of The Event, a collaborative community-based hackathon, and is collaborating with the U.S. Virgin Islands to train technical talent and build critical technical infrastructure. Enjoy this conversation with William A. Adams. To begin our exploration of your story a little bit, you went from a developer at Microsoft to become the technical advisor over a long career arc at Microsoft. And I found this so fascinating because this is often counterintuitive to how many other folks approach their career. And so I think to begin, tell us a little bit more about your career journey and what has made you stay so long at Microsoft? What has drawn you there and kept you around?
1: I'll start in the middle, go backwards, then go forward. So I joined Microsoft in nineteen ninety eight. Prior to that, I had my own company that I had started with my brother in 1984. So that tells you how old I am. And that was always in tech. I was down in Silicon Valley. So I've I've always been in tech. I've been I've been a programming kind of guy since I was 12 years old, self-taught, all that sort of stuff. And in 1998 was kind of the, the waning of our company, at least that phase of the company. I was like, oh, I had a new baby. And it's like, we're, we're making money, but not enough money. These are my earning years. Time to go. And I so happened to have a friend at uh, Microsoft who so happened to send me an email at that time saying, hey, why don't you come on up here? We're doing this thing called XML. And I said, okay, great, so I went. At the beginning, I thought, I'll just be here for two years. (laughs) And two years came, and I thought I would obsess, like, how are things going? Should I stick around longer? This was the birth of the .NET frameworks at Microsoft, the C-sharp programming language. I helped birth the new data stuff that we still use today. And uh, I was building a team, you know, so I thought, ah, two more years <laughs> and two more years. And I still say that today. I just said that this past year, should I stick around for two more years? And I just reassess every two years. I say, what's my deal? You know, am I, am I getting paid like I think I should? What do I want to do? Can I do it here or do I need to leave? And every year, every two years that I've done that, The answer has always been, yeah, you're getting paid. Challenge yourself. Try to do something different. Will they allow you to do it? Can you find a way to do it? If the answer is yes, then why do you need to leave? And it might sound kind of like, well, you're just giving up. It's like, no, I challenge myself. I'm still an entrepreneur. I still do really hard things inside the company, but I get support to do them. So that's why I keep investing, right? Because they keep investing in me. So that's how I've stayed 24 years.
0: I love the two year assessment. Um, a quick follow up question. Why Why two years? Is, is that because that felt like the time where you could sort of master the current opportunity and then start to identify the new one?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you, I'm not a job hopper. So I'm not always looking for the next job outside. When I commit to the thing, I commit to the thing. So like you said, two years is a good amount of time to like really get into the thing, whatever it is. And if it's looking like, no, this isn't gonna be the thing. It's enough time that you said you gave it a good chance, right? If you only committed to every six months, you'd just be hopping all the time. And if you commit to like five years, you're just stagnating. You're not because things change fast in tech, right? So if you say, I'm going to commit to five years, it's like, well, the world has completely changed in the last five years compared Mm -hmm. to where you started. So that's not uh, short enough, right? To stay
0: challenging. I think there's so much to be said for something to be said about commitment. When Jerry and I first started working together and collaborating with ELC, one of the the things in my time, because I, I had hopped around to a couple different startups at the time, and Jerry and I were talking about a lot of long, long-term commitment. And so for him, I kind of gave like the you know verbal commitment of like this is something that I would love to contribute to for at least five years. And, and the manner in which that will look will, will probably change, as you say, very quickly every six months or so. But that's shifted my mindset a lot in terms of the things that we choose to do as an organization when we start to think about more of the long-term commitment side of things. So I, I really admire that. how do you identify the next challenge? Because y- you've taken on a lot of different things. how do you identify those next challenges?
1: Some of it is just evolution. When I started as a programmer, you know, a 12-year-old, uh, what did I do? I just hacked together gameish looking things and like, can I draw sprites on the screen? This is a Commodore PET, so, you know, It's not much of a computer. And over time, there's things that I'm personally interested in. Like in the earliest days of my career, I did database stuff because I had this contract with this company called Ingress, which was one of the earliest SQL database companies. Mm -hmm. Databases were my thing for quite a number of years. I, I literally had this model like the whole world is a database. And I still think that's true. So for a long time, it was databases. We had some custom work that we did with a client which was around distributed networking and the earliest days of, I would say, live meeting. All the chat programs that you use today, like WeChat or WhatsApp or even these video things that we're doing, back in the 90s, that had a precursor because networks weren't what they were. So I worked on that kind of stuff and all the collaboration apps. So I would just do things that's like, this piques my interest, it's cutting edge, and there's not a ton of people doing it, and there's a hard problem, let me tackle it. Right. So there's always a challenge that I would go after in the middle years there, you know, as I'm transitioning through Microsoft and growing out of like XML and whatnot, I've learned stuff about just creating teams, running teams, building teams, building bigger products. And now I come back to some things that are old, some things are new. So some things are are like core networking. I've done things as low level of, as TLS stacks, which is the networking that supports HTTPS, for example. And I've done graphics libraries, 3D modeling I did because I'm personally interested in it. I'm currently doing some video editing effects because it's just fun, right? So the themes throughout my years and how I picked the next thing is a combination of what keeps me interested personally as a developer, you know, a programmer, I select code, I was coding this morning. and What do I see as my responsibility or challenges going forward? So things like creating an an apprenticeship program, you know, to hire more women and minorities. Well, that's not programming, but I'm in such a position that I should be doing things like that because it's transformative for people's lives. So as I matured, it's like, okay, you got the coding thing, you know, you're not going to do that forever. What else? Why? What's the point of all this? Well, it's to enhance people's lives, ultimately. So the thing that's next is typically like, well, okay, let's take engineering to Africa. <laughs> you know, Let's go work in the Caribbean because, hey, there's people out here and why not? Let's help us build up in Atlanta. Let's start black-owned tech companies. So these things are, are more a sign of my age and not just relying on my tech skills it's like you're in this position now, what can you do that other people cannot do to help advance things. So that that's how I picked the next thing.
0: There's so much there. I want to dive into a, a few of the things that you brought up a little bit. But to first capture the, the breadth of what you covered. I'd love to talk a little bit about your transition from sort of that middle career to the different technical advisor roles that you played. Because I think People's conceptions of what a technical advisor is, like could probably be a number of different things. So we'd love to get a little more information about like, what is that? But also then, how did you have to evolve as a leader to operate at that scale or that breadth where you're working on these global initiatives and a lot of these really big programs have made a huge impact?
1: First, I'll start with what is a technical advisor? So what was it 2017 or 18? I can't remember when we started, but Microsoft acquired LinkedIn. And along with that came a head of engineering, Kevin Scott, and uh, Satya Nadella, Microsoft's CEO, made him chief technology officer of Microsoft. And they had to create an office, you know, the office of the CTO. And somehow my name got in someone's hat and they pulled my name out and said, how would you like to be technical advisor to Kevin? And honestly, I thought it was a joke because it's like, we, <laughs> we have a CTO, <laughs> you know. And a technical advisor is roughly, you can imagine Kevin Scott as a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, justices have people that work for them, you know, the various pages or uh, I forget what you call those people, but they do a lot of groundwork. Mm-hmm. And they hand information to the the Supreme Court judge and, you know, they write their opinions. The technical advisor is similar. Kevin has a job, which is to lead the company technically through the next, where are we going in 20 years, Mm -hmm. right? And why and how. And that requires a lot of knowledge of what's happening in the marketplace, what's happening inside Microsoft and uh, steering us, right? Which is a pretty tricky thing to do. So my earliest role was to help us define what was this office. I was one of the first. We hired two more technical advisors soon after me, uh, and we grew that office. So I do a lot of synthesis, like looking out in the industry and saying, oh, given this, this, and this, which is happening in microcontrollers, I believe this means this is what the future of microcontrollers is going to be. This is what we should do about it, right? And I might hand that over to Kevin, and he'll go, oh, okay, that sounds interesting, yes or no, whatever. You know, he uses it however he's going to use it. So that's one thing is you're a synthesizer, and you can do that because, at least in my case, you have a breadth of knowledge of the industry because you've been around a while, or maybe you even know a lot of people in lots of different places. And I know the company because I've been in the company for a while. So I know our culture. I know the kinds of things that are going to work or not going to work, how you have to try to convince people to do something or whatever. Uh, So as a synthesizer and as an internal politician, you're pulling all this together, creating, handing over an opinion. The job is not to run all over everybody and say, you will do this. It's like, you'll be shut down in a second, if that's your attitude. So it's much more humble than that, where you're just trying to serve the company right? And serve the CTO. That's roughly what that technical advisor role is. And it's not, I'm not currently in the office of the CTO anymore, but the label sticks with you because you're always a technical advisor, no matter where you go. It's kind of like Donald Trump was president and he's always going to be called president, you know, because he was. I always have that advisory role, no matter where I am in the company.
0: In a lot of sense, if you're helping support a lot of folks across the entire company, there's, there's less sort of formal positional authority and it's very much driven based on your ability to influence communicating and gain buy-in. How'd you build that skill set?
1: Well, first of all, you have to have some credibility of some sort. And I would say my credibility came from a long history of actually delivering software and helping engineering teams get built. So I lived in India for three years, for example. And what I did there was train our engineers on how to be better engineers or how to be engineers, because uh, there are a lot of college hires. I had credibility as an engineering leader. I had credibility as an engineering builder, You know, helping to build engineering in a different country. Uh, so I had credibility amongst a lot of people. So if I say something, they're willing to have a conversation with me. Because like, oh, yeah, okay, we know you. And we know you know how to ship software. And we know you know how to build people and all this other sort of stuff, so we can have a a conversation. Uh, If I just showed up out of the blue and I was hired in three months out and I didn't know anything and hadn't proven anything, it's like no one's going to talk to you, right? At least not at that level. Um, So I had credibility. And then there's transformation and desire. So I had the ability, I had the experience, and I had the desire to do this kind of work. Not everyone does, right? It's not a for sure career builder sort of thing, you're usually going into a role like that because you want to get exposure to the breadth of the company, uh, because that's what you do, and the breadth of the industry, right? So it's really something you're not going to do probably when you're 20, because you don't know enough to be advising at that level. You had to have seen a lot of systems being developed over time and have a sense for predicting the future, (laughs) you know, you need a crystal ball. Uh, And it's got to be fairly, (laughs) um, maybe not reliable, but at least it has to be used, (laughs) right? It it needs some mileage on it uh, with some wins in it. So uh, it was a combination of those things where it's like there's history, there's experience, there's desire, and there's uh, ability to predict the future. And someone has to pick you. (laughs) So there's luck.
0: I'm really interested in the synthesizer skill that, you, that you'd mentioned, because one, if you could tell us how, how to develop a crystal ball and you predict the future, amazing. But I was wondering if there was like a, a framework or a series of questions that help you synthesize information and present it, because I'm thinking for probably anybody in, in many roles, like the ability to synthesize complex information, especially if you're communicating outside of the engineering context, is an insanely valuable skill set. So how would you might recommend somebody to to become a synthesizer or to develop their own crystal ball?
1: If I had to narrow it down to two skills, one is the ability to just consume a lot. I am a regular reader of code, for example. Mm -hmm. I read tons of... I read way more code than I ever write. So I'm in GitHub looking at projects, just seeing what people are doing, different techniques, styles, blah, blah, blah. So reading code, reading tech news, right? Right. I like everybody else, you know, ycombinator.com and and TechCrunch, whatever. You know, you got to read and see, well, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? You pick some few things like, okay, I'm always going to read what NVIDIA and AMD are doing because that's going to tell me hardware-wise what's happening with GPUs and that whole world, right? Uh, Of course, you're going to know about Intel and all that, but you're also going to read stuff that's on the edge. So reading college papers that people are doing, you know, Every six months, there's a paper that comes out that says, all new battery tech is going to, you know, kill off Tesla. <laughs> it's like, it's a joke. It happens every six months, but you better read it so that you can see the pattern. And at some point, that pattern is going to turn into a reality. It's like, aha, now the ingredients are there to make that thing actual reality. Uh, so there's a lot of consumption of just data, raw data, right? The predictive part of it is just pattern matching, Right. It's being able to draw the lines uh, between the dots and say, oh, this happened. Let me backtrack and see why this happened. It would be hard to predict that AMD would be in the position they are in now relative to Intel, AMD having recovered from near disaster of being irrelevant. But they did something in their architecture where they said, okay, we're going to have these low power cores and we're going to have a lot of them. They made that turn about 10 years ago, whereas Intel was still like, ah, single-core super-duperness. They made that switch. So their architecture dropped them down in power requirements for the equivalent computation. And 10 or 15 years ago, whenever they started doing that, you might have thought, yeah, whatever. But if you look forward and said, okay, data centers, what are data centers about? Well, they're about turning sand and electricity into dollars. <laughs> that's what a data center is, right? You take sand, you turn it into silicon, you pour in electricity and people pay for it. So the cheaper you can do that, which means power, your power consumption has to be done. So the amount of power per transaction, if you can win that game, you're going to win in the end. And that's exactly what AMD is doing. And that's why they're winning now because Intel didn't catch on to that. You know, they're still like power, power, power. It's like, yeah, but um, you're gonna lose that. Uh, so you can predict that AMD is gonna be on the rise. They're gonna, they're not gonna kick on the data center totally because it's about relationships too, and not just power consumption. But you could predict that okay, Intel is not gonna be dominant because AMD's got them on that end. Nvidia's eating everybody's lunch on the GPU end. Apple is going to leave them, and they did. They got their M1 thing going on. And you could predict that because, you know, Apple's had supercomputers since the 90s. They've been doing chip design. They did it with their A-whatever chips, and now they've got the M series. Intel's over there like, oh, they'll be back. It's like, no, they won't, <laughs> you know. So that one's, those are easy predictions, but you have, to, you have to see it and go, what is that going to lead to, right? Let's play this out. Let's say AMD is right and this thing does come to pass. What will that mean, right? Let's say cloud computing is going to be the thing. What is that going to mean for the chips? It's got to be optimized power for efficiency. So whoever can do that best is going to be the winner in that game. So invest in AMD (laughs)
0: 10 years ago, right? (laughs) I think it's amazing to be able to look back because I find myself having a hard time predicting 10 years into the future, let alone what I'm going to eat for lunch tomorrow. Yeah,
1: well, you have to look in both directions, right? You have to look back and say, well, how did we get to where we are today? So Mm -hmm. let me trace that back. And then what today looks like that did 10 years ago, hop forward and just predict, right? Now, some of it is, um, since I'm at a place like Microsoft, some of it is you create the future, right? Right. I couldn't predict what was gonna happen with XML, but I made certain things happen because of the way I did things with XML. There's a language feature we have called system.link in the Microsoft world. And it's the way that you program databases basically in our languages. And this was created from a team that I ran. The original project was called Project Zen. And how we created that was my boss at the time said, okay, those Java guys over there We want to do something, this is like 2005, (laughs) those Java guys over there, we want to do something that they can't easily replicate. And we noodled and noodled and noodled. And then we eventually came across this thing, this thing that eventually came system.link. We've transformed the industry with that stuff. I mean, If you're a C-sharp programmer, you use system.link. You don't even think about it. It's just there. And it's the way you program a database. So in that way, we created the future, right? Uh, So it wasn't prediction. It was, we had the foresight enough to say, well, this has to happen and it actually took seven years to create it. But it was us creating the future. So when you're in a place like Microsoft or Google or, or Amazon, you're creating the future. So that's really easy to predict. You may be wrong and someone might beat you, but you are part of creating the future and not just trying to predict what's gonna happen.
0: I'm curious whether that exercise brings in fresh perspective, because when you look at things in a year, five years and 10 years, the longer the horizon is, the, the way you look at the things are going to be different. So what are the learnings you got by doing that exercise that I think can be beneficial to average engineering leadership daily basis, uh, near management on daily basis. Yeah, I
1: think the what I've learned, and I've been doing this for 35 years, so I have a bit of history to go back on and look forward and how did my prediction, I actually wrote a thing down, which is even better. I have a magazine articles from 1980s that I wrote, and I was like, yep, I was right on with that one. Um, and some of them was like, nah, you totally missed it. The thing to learn is that we're creative. We're not robots. We're creatives. And we should fantasize every once in a while, and we should um, not be afraid to dream. And I do, a lot of, I do a lot of writing when you take, you know, your SATs to go to college and all that. I think I scored higher on English than I did on math, and, and it wasn't a low score. So, you know, it's a, it's, I think writing and being creative and allowing yourself to just fantasize about the future is what I've learned because we're good at that, we're humans. When we tend to be extremely tactical, you're in danger of being replaced by automation, right? Because if all you can do is think a year ahead, I can replace you with a computer, right? You're not doing anything that a computer can't do uh, over time. But if you're thinking 10 years ahead and you're trying to integrate uh, the human into a human equation, then you're more valuable, right? So the things I've learned is be creative. Don't be afraid to pull the humans into the equation because otherwise, as much as we think we're so awesome at being programmers, like just think how much we've automated already. That's not going to (laughs) stop, right? Don't be afraid to uh, fantasize.
0: These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Speaking of integrating into the human equation, at the beginning you were talking a lot about how your role is interfacing with a lot of different folks. And in that type of influencing, you're encountering primarily people problems. Do you have any stories or examples of, of what some of those people problems typically look like? And how maybe those got resolved? Uh, because I think that would give a window into a role that many folks don't have insight into. And we would love to, I guess, hear your story there about resolving people problems and helping influence and shape the the technical direction or or the different problems that you're working on.
1: Uh, I'll say challenges instead of problems. The challenge is, can be just personal, like me and this other person. Regardless of reporting structure or anything like that, how do you deal with another person? Particularly when they're your peers and you're trying to come to a shared understanding of something. And then there's challenges of subordinates. I'm the manager, you work for me, I have to deal with this. And then there's the challenges of working across organizations, right? So I'll start with the first one, the the pure, the just the straight up person things. Uh, what I've learned is uh, humility and listening is probably key. I try to, and this has evolved. You know, I'm 57. I'm not in my 20s where everything is like anger and structure. You know, I want to pound my fist. You know, I'm much more Yoda now. So I can look back and say, well, this is what I've learned from that. Um, I've learned that just being um, as empathetic as possible is useful. Uh, this serves in every situation. And I distinguish between empathy and sympathy. And the way I make that distinction is empathy is, yes, I can put myself in your shoes so I can understand where you're coming from. Sympathy is I'm wallowing in the mud with you. It's like, no, I am not sympathetic. <laughs> you know, I'm empathetic. I understand you're wallowing in the mud because of various things but I'm not getting down there with you. So I understand where you're coming from. I think that's the most important part. The other part of it, and this is useful for all situations, is coming to shared understandings. Uh, When we created system.link, one of the first exercises we did was we went on a giant whiteboard, and my team, it was like five or six of us, we listed all the assumptions. That we were making about whatever it is that we were trying to create. And by listing all the assumptions, we all came to a joint understanding of what we thought the problem space was. Because when you don't list the assumptions, I'm assuming you have the same understanding I do of something. We both think that, you know, everyone should eat broccoli. Well, that's what I assumed, but you didn't. So now seeing it up on the board, you go, oh, really? You thought that everyone should eat broccoli? I didn't think that at all. You know, I thought we should all eat jelly beans. So I've used this technique of getting to core shared uh, first listing assumptions and then trying to march towards a shared vision and mission. And I also try to get people to lift off of tactical moves, like our daily programming, our daily meetings, even our monthly and quarterly planning and all that, very tactical. Implement the features, ship the thing, fix the bugs. That's all tactical. If you can't lift up from that and think more strategically, why am I shipping that feature? And why these five features? How does that get us to what? What's our mission? Where are we trying to go with this? If you can't do that, you run teams that are just running on the treadmill and they burn out. So you have to give a a team, and this is, I think, good leadership. You have to give a team a purpose. Like, why should we follow you? What are we doing? How does this evolve over time? why am I not just going to jump at the first opportunity to get a 10% pay increase? Right. Um, So I I try to interact with people at those different levels so that I, we cement shared uh, vision because then it's like, yeah, we're, we're after a greater good here. And that's why I come to work happy every day because we're going for the greater good rather than, Oh, this is drudgery, you know, and then you just have excuses and complaints. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you? I just wasn't motivated. And, uh, you know, uh, that's what happens.
0: I want to go back to the the whiteboard activity with the assumptions. How do you introduce or facilitate like that assumption exercise? Like how do you help kind of prime people to to share their assumptions for this kickoff?
1: Oh, for this particular one, I was the moderator. So I had the pen. First, I laid out the exercise. What is the exercise? Why are we doing it? Um, Because I say, I think we, there might be some misunderstandings as to what this thing is that we're trying to pursue. And I'll start by listing my assumptions just to get things going and to show people what level at which we're talking about, right? Uh, I don't list all of them because I don't want to steal the thunder. I don't want people to be silent. And I don't stand up there the whole time holding the pen. And I say, okay, that's my assumptions now, you know, and then the next person comes up and they, they do theirs. And it's all encouraging. You're not trying to overly constrain the problem space. Uh, you want people to be their own creative selves. But, and, and you don't want people to tear each other down during that phase. So if someone lists an assumption, it's not allowed for you to say, well, that's a stupid assumption. Why did you think that? So I, as a moderator, will tamp that down. It's like, no, there's no stupid assumptions here. Their assumptions are their assumptions. So I try to play the role of allowing people – because it's a vulnerable sort of thing, right? You're exposing yourself. I thought this. I thought everyone liked to wear hats on Fridays. Like, what an idiot, you know? (laughs) It's like, no, no. (laughs) Safe space. Safe space. So you're creating a space where these people can gel with each other. And then they, once they start doing it, then they start riffing off each other. And then after that, they start to get to the creative phase, which is, oh, well, what are our shared assumptions? You know, what could we do? Uh, so that's how I, I moderate the thing, to make sure that people understand, it's like, this is an open conversation. Uh, don't feel like you had to hold back because someone's going to ridicule you or something like that. It's like, that's not here. And if you're going to act like that, I'm going to kick you out.
0: I think a, a couple of tactical things that I, I just wanted to call out, like the the listing a few of your assumptions first after teeing up the exercise gives everybody a moment to to think if if they haven't already been given the question ahead of time. Uh, and I love the symbolic gesture of, of giving up the pen. I've heard a couple different times that are like one of the big sort of scares in the remote work area, like the, in the remote workspace, is Oh, no, we're not going to get people to be able to contribute as many great ideas or collaboration is going to be more challenging. And so I'm trying to think of ways to like create that sort of exchange of ideas in, in a virtual setting do you have any any distinctions for how you might adjust that facilitation slightly, given like more of a remote context?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's various tools that I've been exposed to, like whiteboards and places where you're supposed to um, put up your sticky notes of concepts, and that can work. It just de- depends on the team. My team, we're now reorged into different places, but the team I had during the bulk of the pandemic, we met every day, 10.30 a.m. for about 30 minutes to just kind of gel. There was no agenda. There was no like, okay, now we're going to do this exercise. In the very beginning, we played trivial games. What this all did to us was make us feel comfortable with each other as humans, you know, as a team. So if we do want to do an exercise that's this brainstorming sort of, let's throw up the assumptions, it would be a natural flow for us. So I, didn't, I wouldn't have to jigger the, the exercise itself. We would just pick some tool that allowed us to facilitate. It might be as simple as drawing on pieces of paper and just holding it up to the camera or submitting an email or doing it in chat or something like that. So the tool doesn't matter if you've done the human work. And the human work is the most important part, right? Where you're saying, are you comfortable talking with your inner voice? I want you to be comfortable with that. Okay, we're all comfortable talking with each other. You know, we can br- bring up any topic, you know, Black Lives Matter protests, you know, George Floyd being choked out, Donald Trump being president. We could talk about it because we felt comfortable. Okay, now we're going to use this whiteboard to jot down some assumptions that we have about the product we're developing. Oh, yeah, no problem. Because we know how to, we know how to interact with each other as humans. Now we're just using this tool because it's convenient to capture whatever exercise we're doing
0: the tool doesn't matter if you've done the human work i love that i love that line so much
1: yep the human work is more important so the tool is just a facilitator after that the the tool's not going to give you the human
0: work you'd mentioned the leap apprenticeship program and there's a couple of things that that have stood out to me about this. I, I know that you all have have graduated about 26 cohorts so far, and I was reading some of the posts on your LinkedIn when you had kind of reached out and saying, "Hey, any alums of the the program? What's going on? How did it impact you?" And it was incredible reading those comments. I mean, yeah, isn't people, that cool? Just like people talking about how it changed their life or changed their trajectory, and now they're they're doing all of these amazing things across the tech ecosystem. So, can you tell us a little more about what is the Leap Apprenticeship Program? And I'd love to hear about what it was like building that. I think the outcome or intention is for somebody who wanted to start to build out an apprenticeship type program for their own company, the early experience I think would be really fascinating to get into to how to set something up and launch. The origins of that program, and now it's called the
1: Microsoft Leap Program, or Microsoft Leap simply. So in 2006, I moved to India to train our engineers how to be engineers. And what I identified, and the reason they had me go there the leadership there asked for me explicitly, they they went to solve a problem. And the problem was every summer they would have like 300 college hires come in and they only had like 700 full-timers at the time. Uh, so 300, 700 is like, they almost outnumber you. <laughs> you know. And we had this revolving door where it's like they'd come in, they'd kind of splash around for a year or less and then they'd leave because, you know, someone else would offer them 10 or 15% pay raise and that was it. And the exit interviews indicated that people were leaving because they felt like they were an only, they didn't have support, they're thrown in the deep end, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I set up this program, and it was five weeks where every college hire came to me first. And I trained them up on how to be engineers. But more importantly, again, with the human thing, is I put them into groups of six or seven. And this was out of a set of, we did like 100, 120 at a time. Uh, so we would have three cohorts per summer. But I put them in groups of six or seven, and they would work as a team. And they would go to lunch, and they would support each other in writing code and blah, blah, blah. And the premise there was that, again, you need a social fabric. The most important thing of going a minority culture going into a majority culture is that you need social fabric or else you're going to flounder. You're going to just flail, and, and when push comes to shove, you're going to go... Well, I don't like this, so sure, I'll take your 15% pay raise. It can't be any worse. So we started this program, and that program was called LEAP. It was an acronym because I like acronyms, and that was the LEAP Engineering Acceleration Program. And the, the concept was that we would accelerate their learning of our engineering roles, right? Uh, so that was 2006, um, and I finally left India in 2009. So for three years, 300 college students per year, roughly 1,000 of them went through that. Roll forward to 2015, and uh, we have this challenge of hiring more diverse talent. I'll just say that. So I I took up this challenge from my engineering leader, and I said, okay, what are we doing now? What are we not doing? And what we weren't doing was actually hiring people. (laughs) We are spending a lot of money in diversity. But we weren't actually hiring people, right? And this was true across the industry. And I thought, well, why? What's the gap? What's going on here? What's, what's the problem? And there's just common refrains like, oh, there's no qualified candidates and anything you can imagine. The bar, we don't want to lower the bar, just everything. And I thought, well, there's plenty of intelligent people out here. We just don't have the mechanism for, to get them in because we hire through college and we hire industry. College, if you didn't come out straight out of college with a four-year degree, we're not going to pick you up. And industry, if you don't have 10 years of experience, we're probably not going to hire you. Well, if you're neither one of those, you're not going to get a job, (laughs) right? You need something in the middle, which is, well, they had a CS degree and they were in tech, but it's a mom who stopped for seven years to raise the kids. You think they're no longer intelligent, (laughs) right? We needed an avenue. Or, hey, here's all these people with STEM degrees. They're just coming over from physics or mathematics or econ, whatever.
0: Geology in the, in the case of Jerry. Jerry is a, a geology major.
1: There you go. Geology It's like, they're all smart people. You think they, how did they get the degree? <laughs> and they've been out in industry doing something. So they know how to collaborate. You know, if they were a good barista, they're probably a good people person. Uh, so we created this program and it was initially called Industry Explorers to indicate, oh, we're taking people from industry and they're exploring. Uh, so that's how it started. We just, uh, I thought back to my days in India, and I said, well, the same thing applies here. You need a social fabric. And yeah, we're gonna teach you how to do the stuff. You need to be able to do the job. And we took people who had already gone through coding academies or whatever. So they're, they're hot to go on the tech skills maybe not four years worth of CS degree, but they know what's modern and useful, right? So we created this cohort model and we ran a couple of cohorts like that. And it's like, oh yeah, it seems to work. Meaning we got the um, hiring managers to sponsor these cohorts. So they knew going in, they helped do the selection of the people who were going to be their uh, apprentices, if you will. Um, So they interviewed them and everything. And so five weeks up front, some training, and then 12 weeks of in the group. So they're essentially doing the same sort of stuff that a college intern would have done. And then at the end of it, just like with our college interns, we get to make a hiring decision, right? It's like, oh, we'd like to hire you. Would you like to work here? And they can say yes or no, right? Uh, So that was roughly the program, Industry Explorers. And then the name changed because someone within Microsoft said, well, we're using that name Industry Explorers. So I said, Hmm, I know. How about Leap? (laughs) So it was called Leap. And then eventually it it now is housed in our uh, HR department. So it's it's called Microsoft Leap uh, because they don't like acronyms. So it's just Microsoft Leap. But that was the thing. It was just basically taking learnings in terms of what you had to do to create social fabric and applying it to this new situation where you're trying to hire diverse talent and now they've gone even further and it's like my co-creator of the program, she invented this, this phrase, you know, talent as a service, <laughs> you know, because it's all about taking, um, making these tech jobs available to all sorts of different kinds of people, you know, all over the planet. Uh, which is great, right? Because it's like, oh, you started out in a data center. Well, that's kind of a dead end, (laughs) you know? So we now have a path that shows, no, 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 you're not in a dead end. You could become a project manager or a coder or whatever. And now there's like 12 different pathways that they support, which is just everything. We started with core software engineers, but now it's like pretty much everything we do, you can go through this program to get there. So that's what it is. How do you create one of these on your own? Uh, It takes a lot of work. I mean, it depends on where your company is at in terms of how they approach. Is it a diversity angle? Is it just a good way of doing business? And do they just pay lip service to the thing or are they truly invested? Microsoft is truly invested and that's why the program has lasted seven years and is expanding. A lot of companies will say, how do I hire a bunch of women? It's like, well, okay. Okay. (laughs) that's pretty short conversation there they are go hire them but they're not going to stay because you don't really care you're just checkboxing Uh, so it starts with having a true understanding and desire to have a diverse talent pool right and it's got to be a business objective that's the start and then you need someone with credibility who can pull it off and that's not easy either because a lot of times it's like oh it's hr's job and the core business is like, well, that's HR and this is us and whatever, (laughs) right? They keep them at at arm's distance. So it's it's imperative that whatever the core function is of the business, that entity or that set of people needs to sponsor whatever the activity is and not just outsource it to HR and get a checkbox. What doesn't work is saying, here's our regular pool of hiring and here's our diverse hires. It's like, Okay, that's a setup for failure, <laughs> right? You're always going to look down on those people. So you just have to figure out how do you just create a diverse workforce. Period. There's no like you hire all the good people and then you hire the diverse talent, <laughs> right? I mean that's the that's the recipe for failure. Uh, so don't do that, and it'll probably succeed.
0: I really love the. Going back to the social fabric concept, because I think the first time that's ever become explicit for me to understand the power of when you help create that sense of social fabric for folks, that they're able to, to just better connect and be connected and identify with the organization.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's critical. And you know, because when, you know, it's like five weeks, I'm not going to give you a CS degree that takes four years and five weeks. That's not going to happen. But I can teach you how to work with your peers to set up a study group you know, so that you can support each other. And over the next four or five years, yeah, of course you're going to know as much as the guy who graduated with a CS degree Uh, because you're self-motivated and you support each other. There's nothing here you can't learn. So yeah, the the social fabric is most important. And then the second thing that's important is to recognize that really what we did was training the hiring managers how to look at talent differently. You know, you might say, oh, well, you hired a bunch of people. It's like, yeah, yeah, we hired some people, but really what I did was I changed the culture. I changed the job descriptions to not have to require a CS degree. I showed a bunch of hiring managers and gave them practical experience in hiring different talent. And I put in place a number of people who over seven years are now the hiring managers. So the virus continues. They will now hire more diversely. That's really what it is. Uh, It's not how how many people did the program hire. It's like, they hired enough people such that there's enough critical mass that they are now hiring managers and they're now hiring diversely. So it was all that. <laughs> and that was quite a crystal ball.
0: But like you said, the, the long-term <laughs> commitment is what makes it important because you're, you're describing something that's occurred over, over a long period of time. and Many years,
1: right. And for that one in particular, when I conceived of it, uh, in my mind, it was a 10-year journey. I was with it core four and a half of those years before it was handed over to HR. Now it's seven years. You know, I'm not in the core of it, but I still consult. They still ask me what I think and how we should expand and stuff like that. But yeah, in my mind,
0: it was a 10-year journey. William, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time together. However, we, we have a couple rapid-fire questions for you okay. to, to wrap this up. The first rapid-fire question, what are you reading or listening to right now? Going, I guess going back to you know, consume, 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 what's on the reading list right now?
1: Reading code. Uh, code, particularly around how to create a JIT compiler, just-in-time compiler. This is just how you turn scripting languages into things that run fast enough. I created a PostScript interpreter uh, last year, so now I'm trying to make it faster. So that's kind of reading. Listening to is a podcast called The All-In Podcast. Uh, It's a bunch of tech bro billionaires who talk about uh, just investing in general and how they invest and what they see is productive uses of money and stuff like that. So that, that's it, reading and, and
0: listening. That's great. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you?
1: Tool or methodology? Tool? Tool? Gee, I don't know about that one. How about methodology? I would say the the practice of mindfulness, if you want to call that a methodology, that would have the most impact on me. So I'm very mindful of uh, how I go through the world and what I choose to do or not do. I'm not just flapping in the wind, you know, blowing with the breeze, doing whatever. I mean, I'm pretty chill. So I'm, I'm not uptight, but I'm pretty intentional. So I am I have a mindfulness practice, I say, is the methodology that I use.
0: Well that. We, we recently had a guest who... Uh... Really quickly to relate, Uh, he taught us like a a grounding activity for going into like maybe a tense conversation, Uh, going back to like solving the people problems, where he mentioned like if you just simply feel the ridges of your fingers or like focus Mm. on like your feet planted into the ground, it's a way to help remind you that you are a physical human being uh, versus, you know, a digital uh, digital analog. So I think the practice of mindfulness can be really powerful.
1: Yeah, things that are tools or, or other practices is I try to do stuff that are non programming. So Gardening, uh, woodworking, now that the weather's getting a little warmer, bicycling, you know, stuff that's just not as cerebral and more of the earth, if you will.
0: You inspired me when we kind of had our our prep call, you know, a few weeks ago. The next weekend, I went and built a garden box. There you go. So like you helped inspire that from the hobby conversation. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay, next question. Going back to being a synthesizer, what's a trend that you're seeing or following that's been really interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet?
1: There's a whole bunch of stuff in finance, which can get pretty wild and crazy. But I I think sticking to the tech stuff, uh, I I, I have an older brother, and we're always talking about tech and finance and the future of the world and all that. And I've been spending some time trying to explain to him how technology advances and why quantum is going to be a leap, just like the invention of the transistor was an inflection point. And quantum is interesting because it's quite a buzzword and it means a lot of different things and there's a lot of technologies in there that's like, oh, if that ever happens. But I'm telling you, (laughs) there are going to be things that emerge out of various quantum effects that are going to sneak up on us. And even before they sneak up on us, the doubling of uh, processing power in the same space uh, hasn't really stop It slow down a little bit, but it always finds a way, just the sheer compute power that's going to be available in very small spaces is going to be as transformative to our societies from the invention of the airplane to um, uh, rockets today, right? And everything that that has done (laughs) to our societies, including the creation of personal computers, Quantum is going to be the thing that we're just like 50 years looking back, we'll be like, wow. (laughs) So quantum effects are are the things that I will point out is like, you have no idea (laughs) what's going to happen. And it's going to, look. it already looks like magic, but it's going to look even more like magic. And looking back, our kids will be like, yeah, whatever. And we'll be like, "Uh, where's David (laughs) Copperfield? (laughs) You know. So that, that would be my, my one thing.
0: That's great. Two more quick questions. What is your favorite or most powerful question to ask or be asked?
1: The most favorite question I would ask anyone or have asked of me is, uh, what is your mission in life? Simple question. Basically, why are you here?
0: <laughs> I love it. Our last question. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's really resonating with you right now?
1: A quote. Not really. The the quote would be my own. And it's my life creed is probably the best thing I could think of because these are the words that I actually live by. All right. So should I spell it out? Please. All right. So life. It's L-I-F-E. So L is learning. I everything around me is about learning. There's not a moment in in your day that you're not learning something, no matter what. Even you burn your hand on the stove, you learn something. Don't put your hand on the stove when it's hot. Uh, I find that to be a good one. The I is intentional. So as I said earlier, it's like I I feel the wind, uh, but I don't change direction just because the wind is blowing. I try to go in the direction I want to go, and I'm intentional about that. The F is fearless. I don't have any fear of confronting reality, right? And that has many forms, like... Look, you're not going to become the CEO of Microsoft. Darn. (laughs) Uh, You could have a fear that you don't uh, know how to raise your children. You know, you could have the fear that your girlfriend's going to break up with you. You could have the fear that you're not going to be a good enough programmer. You know, there's a lot of things that you could be afraid of. I'm I'm not. Because no matter what happens, I learn something. And that's that's not to say I don't have emotion because sure, if the girl or my wife breaks up with me, I'm going to be sad. I'm not afraid though. It's like, okay, that happened. What do I learn from it? What should I do differently? You know, let's keep going. Uh, Empathetic is the last one. So L I F E. Empathy is to keep me rooted in the human thing. So I said earlier, it's like, you can be a programmer and, if you can't think ahead, you can be replaced by automation. Well, my empathy is what's going to keep me in the game. Because yeah, you can replace what I can do on a keyboard. It's harder to replace how I feel towards another human because I have a shared human experience, right? That may be automatable over time as well, but at least today it's not. So empathy is important to me because that leads me to well why are you doing this thing? Why are you going into the slums of Kenya to help them set up a computer programming facility? Well because I understand their situation and I want to help. I'm not going to go live in the slum. I I don't need to, but I can certainly say, "Oh, I bet you know there's something we could do together." Uh so that's it. That's that's my quote is life. Uh
0: the words I live by. Keep rooted in the human things. I love the, the last quote. William, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your stories, and all the lessons that have helped you evolve as a leader over the years. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been fun. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with William A. Adams. When thinking about your next career move, try a career assessment every two years. William shared that two years is just about a good enough commitment to get immersed into the new thing. So when you're doing this, ask yourself, what do I want to do? Can I do it here? Or do I need to leave? And if you can find a way to do what you want, the other question then is, why do you need to leave? To help you pick the next thing, ask yourself, what can you do that others can't that can help advance things at the business? This is especially important as you become more senior. What is a technical advisor? And how do you grow into that role? Technical advisors synthesize what's going on in the market to help out C-level executives steer the long-term trajectory of the company. And why would you be interested in this type of role? Oftentimes, you gain exposure to a greater breadth of the company. And two key skills of technical advisors, influencing and synthesizing. To build those skills, first, gain credibility, whether that's by proven results in building software or in building engineering teams, consume tons of content around your area of focus and practice making predictions. And one way to do this, when you see an event, ask why did that event happen? And then backtrack to the root cause and then look forward. So given the current landscape of the market or the industry you're in, what else has to happen? And then practice writing down those predictions. And you might be surprised about what happens later on when you look back on those. One practice to create shared understanding and vision in your team. Try listing out all of the assumptions about a project before initiating. To facilitate this, start by sharing the what and the why behind the exercise. So for example, I think there might be some misunderstandings to what we're trying to pursue. Let's try listing out some of our assumptions. And then from there, list your own assumptions first, and then give up the pen and ask people to share their own assumptions. And then an important rule here to introduce, there are no stupid assumptions. Enforcing that rule will help create space and freedom to share. And then ask, what are our shared assumptions? And have the group discuss to create a more unified vision. Before the activity even happens, you need to lay the human groundwork to generate the best responses and create spaces for people to share and connect with each other outside of the problems and work discussions. So the example from Williams team is they conduct a 30 minute morning meeting just to catch up outside of work. And an often overlooked area to impact hiring and retention, building the social fabric for your new hires. What this looked like with William was creating support groups of six to seven new hires who would connect regularly, go to lunch, and write code together. The social fabric created from these peer groups has been a significant way to provide support for someone, especially for folks in a minority culture going into a majority culture. To close... Remember to keep rooted in the human things. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.